Welcome first-time listeners and returners to the Sports Deli. The Sports Deli is sponsored by SportRx. SportRx is the leader in sports prescription eyewear. You can find them online at sportrx.com. And don't forget to enter the code DELI10 at checkout for your special 10% discount. We also want to give props to PSK Collective. Be inspired in PSK where their clothing promotes inclusivity, empowerment, and equality by supporting female athletes through the Women's Sports Foundation. You can find them online at pskcollective.com or at walmart.com. We also want to thank citylokes.com, where you can get your own personalized hats and phone cases, tees, accessories, and much, much more. I ordered two hats, and they're amazing. Uh, One of them says the Sports Deli, and it has a California license plate, and the other one has a Michigan license plate and says, Speak Up and Dribble, Black Lives Matter. So check them out at citylokes.com, and don't forget to enter the code THESPORTSDELI at checkout for your special 10% discount. And we're so excited to finally be supporting Moolah Kicks. They're dropping in May of 2021. They are the first female-only brand basketball shoe, and you can find them online at Moolah, Moolah is M-O-O-L-A-H, kicks, like shoes, K-I-C-K-S, plural, moolahkicks.com. Again, much thanks to Natty White, the founder of Moolah Kicks. You can always send us an email to thesportsdeli at gmail.com. And you can also DM us on Instagram at Mike Hootner or on Twitter at Michael Hootner. A little bit about Hootie Hoot. I coached college basketball for 23 years, 15 on the men's side and 8 on the women. And I now coach at a low-income first-generation high school girls basketball here in San Diego. I played four years of college basketball. I'm a life coach. I have a beautiful daughter. I'm a professional basketball skills trainer. We love to share space with our guests here in the Sports Deli to talk about the intersection between race and sports, mental health and sports, equality, empowerment, empathy, leadership, education, sports, and solutions. We talk a lot about white privilege. We want to help mobilize, listen, learn, and pay it forward. Remember, your voice matters when fighting systemic racism. Read a book, acknowledge your white privilege, watch a movie about institutional racism, call your local or state representatives, and or have a conversation with someone that doesn't look like you. We have to change the economic, educational, police, housing, prison, and voting suppression narratives that currently need to be changed in this country. And the only way to do that is to listen and learn, and then help be a part of the mobilization and change that we want to see. We're so honored that you're joining us today, and we hope that you can grab your favorite deli sandwich or bagel and your favorite beverage, and let's do this together in the Sports Deli. We are joined today on this 20th day of National Alcohol, Fresh Celery, Humor, and Cannabis Awareness Month by Chris John Johnson who was the Los Angeles Times' 1993 Player of the Year, who later went on to star at UCLA, where he won a national championship as a freshman for the 1995 UCLA Bruins. He went from Montclair Prep, a mostly white school, to Crenshaw at the suggestion of his father, 
where he played with some amazing players like our most recent guest on the show, former NBA champion, Tremaine Folks. While at Crenshaw, after transferring from Montclair Prep, KJ averaged nearly a double-double going for nearly 23 points and nine rebounds a game. It was one of the toughest players to defend, especially when he backed his way towards the basket and attempting to box him out was nearly impossible. Johnson was named the City 4A and the Times' Central City Player of the Year. His last second shot he made to beat Modern Day in the 1993 State Southern California Regionals was one of the most epic and clutch shots in scholastic state history. Baron Davis, former Bruin and NBA star and friend of KJ, listed KJ as the fourth best player ever to come out of Los Angeles behind Tremaine Folks, Shea Cotton, and Miles Simon. High praise from Baron. He later teamed up at UCLA with Toby Bailey from Los Angeles's Loyola High School. His father, Marcus Johnson, also played at UCLA and won a national title like Chris, playing alongside Bill Walton and later starred in the NBA as a five-time All-Star. His dad also made the phrase, yeah, baby, famous the, the radio broadcaster during his son's national championship run. Chris and his dad were the only father and son combo to be named LA City Player of the Year 20 years apart at the same high school, Crenshaw High, and the first ever father-son combo to win a national collegiate championship at the same school at UCLA. Sadly, his dad robbed a liquor store and got out hustled on the basketball court when Chris was younger, but fortunately it was only a movie as he starred as Raymond Dickens in the famous movie, White Men Can't Jump. He didn't beat his dad in one-on-one until he was a sophomore at UCLA. And when he was a kid, he was in the Milwaukee Bucks locker room where his dad Marcus played and Hall of Fame coach Don Nelson once told him that he was dribbling too much and glared at him. The Bucks retired his dad's number eight jersey in 2019. And when Michael Jordan was filming Space Jam, he would have pickup basketball games with a number of Chris's fellow teammates from the 1995 UCLA National Championship team. And Chris was always MJ's number one pick. He also gave Chris a pair of his actual shoes. But what Chris loved most was that he realized MJ was just like him in terms of competition and trash talking. This was especially mind-blowing for Chris as he worshipped MJ growing up as he had a poster on his wall at UCLA. He played overseas, including Russia, Turkey, Qatar, Lebanon, and China when the Iraq war was going on, as well as in the Continental Basketball Association for the Quad City Thunder and Sioux Falls Sky Force, where he played with Fav Five, Jimmy King, and many others. His brothers and sisters were very accomplished athletes. He loves to work out and talk shit while he's working out. He is the host of KJ Live, which has become one of the more polarizing live broadcasts on Instagram with his authentic, wide-ranging interviews and contagious laugh. He loves to experiment with different backgrounds on his show. He's done some work for Fox Sports as a studio analyst. He starred on a reality show. He's a dad, and his son Will plays basketball for the Oregon Ducks, and he shares a birthday with current Memphis coach Penny Hardaway, Wendy Williams, Ben Diesel, and Nelson Mandela. You can find him online on Instagram at Chris Johnson Live, on Twitter at Point Forward Pro, and on YouTube to search for Chris Johnson Live, where on his KJ Live broadcast has brought us some of the most unbelievable guests. Man, a huge national championship. Warm welcome to the Sports Deli, bro. Thank you. That was a, a nice intro. 
<laughs> where, do I, where do I send the check? Repping UCLA, baby. KJ live in the house. What's up, Doc? What's up, man? How you doing? <laughs> Dude, I got a man. I, I have I have totally our yo. <laughs> you multitasking like a motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're straight, man. So so listen, man. Um, obviously, I've listened to a lot of your interviews. Uh, I was I'm probably as pumped about this as I've been about. Any any of our guests, uh, whether it's Jay Billis, Doug Williams, just because um, just the way that you go about uh, your interviews is is just um, it's authentic. Uh, I love just the way that you pivot and show agility, you know, during your interviews, and and you have a genuine concern for your guests. You know, a lot of them you know, but you 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 know you really care about um paying it forward and and uh listening and, and learning even though you've had a lot of success in your life but i want to ask you you know obviously ucla had a, had a great run uh this year how, how crazy is it to lose four in a row to end the regular season and then win five in a row including over a, a tom Izzo, you know led michigan state team but they had won four before the four losses which was even crazier they won four lost four won five yeah uh, those four that they lost, it just shows you that it was just, you know, it was close. They were in every game. Yeah. It was down to, you know, a lot of times the last possession, they lost on the buzzer beater. Then like three, they lost, had three point loss and nothing, another five point loss, but it, everything was close. They're in it. They're in it until the last minute of the game. That was uh, indicative of a team that was locked in, bought into what coach Cronin is doing. Sometimes you're going to hit shots. Sometimes you're going to not hit shots. And that's in those four games, that was the difference between winning and losing. I've never talked about this on the show and I don't know how many episodes we've had, maybe 60 and it's, you know, it's pretty guest driven like yours. Um, but I, I want to ask this question uh, and, and give me a second to sort of frame it in the right way. So, so growing up, I had, I had some incredible memories, great friends like you. Uh, my youth coaches were really important to me. Uh, my aunts and my mom, and my grandparents, you know, helped me a lot because um, the one thing I have talked about on the show is my dad committed suicide when I was nine. Um, and Sorry. yeah, it's, but it, it, you know, it was devastating at the time, but it, it was just something that I think uh, I didn't realize it, but, you know, going forward, that's a reason why I sort of operate in the way that I do and I pay it forward and, and, and helping kids and, and, uh, you know, being an advocate for women and equality and those types of things. Uh, and you had some difficult things uh, that you had to deal with when you were younger. Um, and so, you know, I don't know what you're comfortable talking about. You know, obviously, just share whatever it is that, you know, you want to talk about, because we all have stuff that we've dealt with growing up, right? And, and so you had some things that you had to deal with. And um, so the one thing that I thought about this morning, actually, when I woke up, when I, you know, thought about your story and how, how I wanted to sort of intro it when i was in fifth grade my mom asked me if i wanted to go to a public school and i was going to a jewish day school for the first four years and i was literally miserable mm. you know and um you know i don't know how many people know you know your history of growing up and some of the changes you had to go through and some of the hardships you had to go through but you know a lot of people that listen to the show are white and we're, we're trying to educate people in a way where we're not ramming it down their throat but also you know, making them see things from a black perspective and the white perspective, because the reality is some people listen to blacks and some people listen to whites. Mm -hmm. But talk a little bit about like you do on your show, 
um, KJ Live, uh, you ask people their literally their their parents' names and where they grew up and stuff like that. So tell us a little bit about you know some of the the hardships and some of the things that that uh, paved the way for you growing up. Uh, well, everything wasn't necessarily a hardship, uh, uh, Mike. Uh, there were some challenges, you know. So I, the way I grew up, uh, my mom had me. I think she had to drop out of college. She was at UCLA. Her and my dad were high school sweethearts at Crenshaw High. And then they, um, you know, I think they went on to UCLA. And my mom got into UCLA, ended up getting pregnant, had to drop out of school, had me. Um, and then that sort of started, you know, my, my sort of journey through life. Um, you know, everything wasn't rosy in the beginning between my mom and my dad. Uh, they were never married. Um, and so, you know, I would spend time with my mother. I would spend time with my dad. Um, at the time, my dad was in the NBA playing for the Milwaukee Bucks, so he'd be either in Milwaukee or LA. So a lot of the time I would spend at my grandparents who grew up, who lived in um, the, it's called View Park, sort of like uh, Ladera Heights area of LA. Um, and so my mom, we lived off of 60th Street in Crenshaw, so we were right in the hood. Um, and so growing up was a little weird for me because I, you know, I'd spend the week, you know, at my school or whatever school it was that I went to like 20 something different schools growing up because moving wow. around, moving around my mom and my dad moving, changing the country, living the country, you know, moving states. It's just, it's, it's an odyssey. So um, the, the, the thing that made it difficult for me, I, and I remember just identifying this at an early age, was just not really understanding just, you know, how to be, you know, because when I was with my mom in the black neighborhood, you know, I could talk black. I could be black and, and I, it wasn't an issue. But when I went over with my dad and I'd be, he lived in Bel Air. So I'd have to go over there and, you know, I'd be around white people and I'd have to talk a little differently, move a little differently, act a little differently. And so this went on for a number of years. Um, you know, I eventually uh, moved in with my dad when I think I was 13 for good. So between 13 and 18 is like when I live with my dad for good. But before then it was, you know, back and forth and, grandparents had me for a little bit which is why I'm so close with my grandmother uh my grandfather rest in peace but they had me for a large part of my life they're a big huge part of uh who I am and the way I, I operate uh so you know that that part of it was definitely difficult it was definitely a challenge it was definitely something that you know bothered me created issues in me just having the just you know having to change up and I wouldn't even say a sim I wouldn't even say a chameleon because you know, it, uh, you know I, these were things I had to do just because uh, whatever insecurity I had about myself or the setting or the scenario, oh, I don't want them to judge me or think of me like this. If I was in the white neighborhood or if I was in South Central, it's I don't want them to think I'm too white. So I have to talk more black, act less smart than I actually really am. And so these were things that, you know, you go through, you know, and, and throughout school and you know, obviously I had a personality that would stand out. And so sometimes, you know, you just have to, I don't know, change up who you are. And that's, that's sort of what my whole point of telling this, just this part of it was, because it's just not really having a struggle with identity and who you are and being black. Uh, but, you know, having grown up in, you know, white neighborhoods at the height of white neighborhood in Bel Air and at the, you know, bottom of the barrel, if you will, in South Central, I was going, I was living in Bel Air, driving to Crenshaw. 
in high school. So, I mean, just imagine that, like, you know what I mean? It just, it's just, it was just weird, you know, it was weird, but it also gave me the ability to deal with anybody in the world. So I can talk to anybody. Um, and I think, you know, you see that with my show, um, when you grow up that way, you know, you, you, you know, you have a lot of friends, you have different people that kind of come in and out of your life. And so, and it isn't necessarily based on factors like, you know, this or that, but it's just like whoever would be nice to you and talk to, whoever will accept you for who you are, whoever is not going to care that you don't talk white enough, you don't talk black enough, or if your hair is curly or if you're overweight or whatever, it's who are you, is going to be cool with you. And so I picked up, I was able to, you know, just gravitate towards people that had like-minded energy, if you will. And, you know, sometimes they don't, it doesn't always look, you know, like you think it's going to look, but, uh, you know, these people were important to me. And so, yeah, I mean, the challenges, you know, it was a big, a lot bigger, different of a challenge when I was with my mother versus when I was with my dad. So I felt all the hardships and obstacles when I was with mom and living off of, you know, 43rd and King Boulevard out here and having to, you know, watch, you know, everything from, you know, just not having, not having certain things. My mom, you know, she did everything she could uh, to, to provide for us. And we did definitely lived a decent life, but there's just a big difference, you know, when I go to my dad and I'd be exposed to certain types of things and I go back to my mom and now this is creating issues with my parents and I'm looking at my mom and this situation a little differently as a child, you know, you're 13, 14, 15 years old or not, not even that you're uh, nine, 10, 11 years old. And you got on one hand and you got Bel Air and the glitz and glamor of, you know, whatever Hollywood and all this other stuff, your dad's a celebrity. And then, uh, you know, your mom's working hard, you know, she's working two jobs. She's going to trade tech college out here just studying to become an engineer. We're on the RTD every day, riding the bus around. I knew every bus route in uh, in Los Angeles County, dang near, when I was a child. Latchkey kid coming home with my little brother, uh, Scott, uh, my little brother, Kalik. So I would have to, he was about three years younger than me. So I have to, you know, take him home, walk him home from school. Um, you know, we had the key and a dime, you know, the dime, you can make a call back then for a dime. So you have right. a key and a dime in your wallet and you know, that's what it was. We'd ride the bus out from South Central LA to downtown every morning. Uh, my mom dropped my mom off at school. Then we head back. I'm 10 years old, you know, responsible, to going back to school in LA, going to school, making sure I got to school, making sure I'm getting home 10 years old. And, you know, it was a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot of those type of things were the challenges. But then, you know, on the weekend, hey, I'm, you know, somewhere unbelievable, you know, just like, like your wildest, you know, I mean, whatever your dreams are coming true on the weekend when, when, when it's your dad's weekend, just put it like that. And then I go back to reality. And so that happened for a while. And, you know, and so that was, you know, it, it's a lot of stuff. I mean, it's just, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. When, when we've had some side conversations, uh, I, I could sort of sense um, similar energies in terms of obviously we've, we've done well for ourselves, but there's, there's that past that uh, you know, either creates a void or the, the wound is healed and now we're using it in a way to empower ourselves and others and, and uh, you know, that allows us to evolve. And if we hadn't had those experiences, even though we wouldn't wish them on anyone, right. um, they, they do make us grow right. and, and stronger and better people, right? What, what doesn't kill us kind of thing. Um, yeah. and, and so a lot of the things that you sort of peripherally talked about are taboo subjects, um, you know, in, in several communities. Um, and so looking back on it, are there things that you've 
address later in life that you feel like uh, you understand better now? Uh, because, you know, we've talked a lot about mental health on this show. It's, it's not taboo anymore as much as it used to be with the NBA or NFL, those types of things. Whether it's mental health or anything else, are there, are there other things that you feel good about that you've overcome, that you've, you've uh, investigated with yourself and said, oh, okay, I, I'm, I got closure with that now? Yeah, um, I don't know if I think about it in those exact terms, but I do know that I've definitely evolved and grown um, from when I was, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old um, into now, um, into my elder approaching 50 here in about four or five years. Uh, a lot of that had to do with, you know, having kids, uh, the natural just evolution of life. And then you have to learn some hard lessons. You know, you got to fail. You know, you got to, you know, just like Frank Sinatra's, you know, the, what's the song? Um, That's life. You know, he's like, mm. you got to pick yourself up and dust yourself off over and over and over again. And hopefully you're taking some lessons from the last time that you picked yourself off and, you, and so that you're not walking the same path that caused you to trip, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and so that part of it is kind of like the natural part. And then having children and having people to be accountable to as far as your behavior and, you know, this and that. So, yeah, I, you know, I mean, again, I'm, I'm still a work in progress. I'm not by any means a, a finished product or anything like that, but yeah, there's definitely things that, that, um, that, you know, I've grown from and I've learned from, and I've had to experience the hard way. I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've had a lot of things that, just dealing with just, you know, exposure just to relationships, you know, I've been divorced and I've been in, you know, dealing with court and kids and just the whole thing. So it kind of strips you down uh, in a way to where your pride doesn't, isn't necessarily the the thing that drives you anymore because, you know, you just been dissed and just talked about so bad. And it just don't matter. Yeah. So you look at yourself a little differently, you know, you, I guess I don't want to call it humility, but it's just something that happens to you when you get a little older and you're just not tripping on some of the stuff as like you used to, you know what I'm saying? And that's where I, I kind of got to um, within my life. Did you ever talk to Matt Barnes about uh, how he's had to sort of reinvent himself, not just professionally, but as a dad, you know, and, yeah, and, the, yeah. and the run-ins with him, with his situation with, with yeah. Derek and stuff? Yeah. No, it was interesting. I did talk to Matt Barnes about that topic in particular. I asked him about, you know, what it was. And he just basically said, hey, man, you know, we just had to grow up. You know, now it's about doing things for the greater good of the kids. And if you love your kids enough, you will sacrifice your pride and get along with whoever the significant other is that your woman that you had the kids with has moved on to. And that's, that's, a, that's easier, a lot easier said than done because there's just yeah. so many, when you have relationships with people there's and kids, there's so many doggone emotions and resentment. And just, there's so much stuff that goes into it. You almost can't even have a conversation with these people without having a mediator in the room mm -hmm. to make sure that you guys aren't tearing each other's heads off. And so when you get into a situation like that and they came to blows before uh, Matt and Derek did, um, you know, it's either you're going to drive yourself crazy, obsessing over beating this dude up and obsessing over the fact that he's with your ex now, even though, you know, you know, you may be doing whatever you've moved on. But it's so it starts to become a thing where it's like, let me grow up. Let me evolve a little bit. And that's what Matt said. He said he just felt he just woke up and was like, look, man, I just want to. I'm just trying to get along. I'm not tripping on that. And about since so about two since about 2018, Matt's been really cool with Derek Fisher. Uh, so three years now. And so, uh, you know, they're moving forward. And that's kind of the place that's 
it's really important um, to get to if you have children with someone and you're not with them anymore. And, you know, you just don't want to spend your their whole childhood and life, you know, holding their mom or holding their dad in a negative vein to where it affects the way you talk about them. It affects the way you, you know, the, the how you present them to your children. And then totally. your kids are going to grow up with, you know, a certain type of thing in their head. They're going to start disrespecting you because mom says it's cool. It just becomes a whole thing. You know, it yeah. becomes a, a whole thing. So the best bet is to put your pride aside, chalk this one up to the game and just get along for the greater good of the kids. And that's just it. Yeah. Mad props uh, for that part of your evolution. Cause that, like you said, the kids are, are most important. My daughter's 10, you, your kid will talk about in a little while. He's, you know, one, uh, he's playing, one of them's playing at Oregon, uh, following you and your dad's footsteps, which is really cool. We hope you're enjoying this incredible interview with Chris Johnson, former national champion with the men's basketball team at UCLA in 1995, who later went on to play professionally. And he will now discuss Parts of his experiences at UCLA, including that championship run, and his incredible transformation between his freshman and sophomore campaigns, where he went down to Atlanta to visit his mom, and when he came back, no one recognized him, including Michael Jordan. So refill your favorite beverage, and let's continue to do this together in the sports deli. So let's let's go back to the UCLA days because I know some people listening want to want to hear a little bit about you know that experience because uh, <laughs> time flies when you're having fun and I remember you know I, I first started working camps there you know and Lav was the restricted earnings coach I think and and I want to ask you about Lorenzo in a minute uh, because uh, people you know know him as a coach at, at Pepperdine and Washington and and you know Mark you know coached at Alabama and a couple other places but. Um, what was that like, you know, um, Tyus Edney's shot in the second round and then just going from there and, you know, big country in the final four, you know, like just talk about that run and, and what it was like. For me, it was, I, I kind of had, I'll be honest with you about that run. It, I had mixed emotions about it. So I had just mm -hmm. come off of winning two state championships. Yeah. Um, we were top five in the country both years. And I, honestly, I, I got signed by UCLA. Everybody thought I was an afterthought to the class or just because my dad went there. But I was coming in to play. And I came in in training camp. I had tore my knee up about in August or two months, about July, that summer, I, I tear my knee up. I got to get a, a scope. So they scope my knee. I come back. So this is like literally within three, four months. I come back. I make it to the point uh, at UCLA where I'm in the rotation, six man. We get to the first exhibition game against athletes in action. I drop 18, okay, as a freshman, 270 playing center, okay, in a real game. Uh, so, and then I, right after the game, I developed a stress fracture. So I drop 18, they look at my leg, they're like, oh yeah, you're out for like a month and a half. So it goes ah, from the knee. Damn. So I had the knee, then I come back, drop 18 as a freshman, have a stretch fracture. Now I'm out the rotation and you know my mind is blown. So you asked me how I dealt with that. So the way I dealt with it, because there was a lot of embarrassment and humiliation for me growing up in LA, mm. uh, being on top at Crenshaw. And you know how it is when you're younger, you know, you care about what other people think and people are, you know, oh, Chris, oh, you didn't go do it. And so I wanted to show everybody that I was going to do it. And, and, and dropping that 18 and showing I belong on the college level, I was like, oh, heck yeah. You know, like it was just one of those things I checked off, like, yeah, my dreams are coming true. And then the, my dreams are shattered. But then we go on this run now, my guys that 
J.R. Henderson, Toby Bailey, my fr- my fellow freshmen are now playing a lot and, you know, getting a lot of notoriety, getting a lot of love on campus. And, you know, as time goes, you know, this stuff kind of just like, you know, you, you kind of get lost in the shuffle. So I'm not going to say that I was like necessarily like not happy about the run, but I was I had some concerns about my own personal success as well. I, people mm-hmm. always walk around like you're just supposed to be a robot. and Oh, you're just happy because you're winning. That's not how this stuff works. Uh, a lot of times, especially when you place high expectations and standards on yourself personally. Okay. So what happened was my, I think my, I think I was thinking about transferring. Um, Cause I had came back and I was mad. I wasn't playing. We're in the heart of the PAC 10 mm-hmm. slate yeah. and we're doing good too. And so we're winning games. We're beating folks. We're looking good. The lineup is working. The rotation is working. I'm sitting there outside looking in. I'm on an exercise bike at a practice, UCLA practice, my freshman year, because uh, we're trying to keep the, um, the the pounding, you know, from the running and stuff because the stress fracture. So I'm yeah, on an exercise yeah. bike, you know, you know that move. So I'm on an exercise bike kind of just like, man, I'm out of here. I was just thinking about transferring midseason. Wow. Yeah, it became a thing where, you know, you, I, I don't know if it's jealous, but I see all my guy, everybody's playing. I'm not. I come back from my stress fracture. Coach ain't giving me a shot because he's not about to disrupt the chemistry because we're hooping. And so I'm like, man, F this, this and that. And so Steve Lavin, he's, uh, he was the, uh, the third assistant at the time. Yeah. He wasn't RA anymore, a restricted mm-hmm. earnings. He wasn't restricted earnings anymore. He was the third assistant they at that time. Yeah. 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 Cause they took it out. Yeah. He comes up to me, you know, he asked me what's going on. I just start going off. Like, I, I just start going off to laugh. Like, fuck this, uh, F this, you know. I'm sorry. I didn't know you guys. It's all good, bro. But, 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 but I was just going off. You know, I was like, I'm out of here. Like, I hate Coach Herrick, you know, lied. Like, I'm cool. I was just like on some just completely off stuff. And then we just sat there for about 45 minutes. And he just sat there and talked to me. He just talked to me about just like other stuff, like, you know, what did I want to, you know, just talking about life and decisions and, and how, you know, decisions can alter your life forever. <laughs> That's laugh. <Lav. laughs> That's laugh, bro. Oh, so laugh, laugh is giving me all these spill, this spill, and, 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 you know, he's breaking down like scenarios. Did you, have you ever seen this side of him before? Like, did you know he was like this? So, no. So this is my, my thing with laugh. I just knew he was, you know, he could do the hell out of the King's drill, uh, the stance. He big, step. His, yeah, big step, big step, big step. Mm-hmm. And I used to always think he was a legend just for that. So I didn't really mess with him like that. But yeah, yeah. this was the first time he messed with me real heavy. He came to my city championship game, but it was like, you know, I was looking for Herrick and, and Romar, yeah. but then Lab chopped it up with me for about 45 minutes. And I was just so like moved by the conversation and by him. Cause I never had that type of just that type of, thought process positive energy just jolted in because basically he was telling me he believed in me and that he believed in me and you know that he he felt like that I could help UCLA if I stayed and to hear that from a coach because I hadn't been hearing that a lot you know believe it or not even though coach Eric's playing me you know they're not telling me all this you know but to hear Lav say that that he felt like I could really contribute here it just gave me so much confidence and just made me so happy just to be at UCLA and just like, just something like that. Just somebody just telling you, you know, you're going to help us here. And so I, I just, you know, I cited against transferring. I ended up staying. And that's when I started to people, your, your loyal Bruin listeners will remember. <laughs> I started wearing uh, the towels and stuff. I yeah. did. I only did that to cover my face during the game because I'm sitting here 
I was I was just trying to outwardly show that I was okay, I was happy, and I was cheering my team on. It was calculated. It was a strategic move done by me because if I didn't have my towel on, and I'm an expression filled right. person, so Camera, you're gonna, cameras are on you, yeah. and you're gonna see my face being pissed, and I'm gonna be salty over here. So I was like, I'm wearing towels, dog, the whole rest <laughs> of the season, ain't nobody gonna see my face, and I'm just gonna be like overdoing the cheering, overdoing it, and that's the role I took. And whether or not, you know, on the inside, was I completely, totally happy and content with, you know, our success, despite not playing? I, you know, I, I mean, if I'm completely honest, I was not. I was not happy. I wanted to be playing. I wanted to be contributing. I wanted to be getting some buckets out there. I wanted to be on uh, Channel 5 News later on that night, like me and Toby running back to our dorm room. We're watching him on Channel 11, dunking, reversing on people. I wanted to get some of that love, too. And so I flipped it into, you know, a, a different type of move because I just wanted it. I really felt like we could do something special. I didn't want to let down not only Lab, but Lorenzo Romar was very important to me as well, as well as Coach Harry, Coach Gottfried. But those guys, you know, I just decided to flip my energy because I know my energy. I can, I can move a situation any way I want it with my energy. And if I was going to be a salty swordfish, as Lav likes to say, mm. um, we probably wouldn't have won the championship. It would have been, I mean, I don't know if it was that big of a deal, but you know, you could be, you know, a, a bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. You know how that go in, in yeah. team settings when everybody's trying to pull in the same direction. You got somebody over here tripping. It's like, man, we ain't got time for that. So I, I snapped out of it, man. But anybody in that situation would feel the same way. And if you don't feel that way, you're not a competitor. Like right. you don't want someone to get injured. But no, at the same time, no. you're like, man, this is some, man, yeah, I, I want to play. I, I want to play. play. Yeah, play. exactly. Um, so interesting. So you had different motivations that, that uh, created this narrative. And then you go on um, and you changed some other things about you physically. So talk a little bit about how you transformed your, yourself physically and how, how that really helped you. Because we don't hear about stress fractures anymore. Like, remember back in the day, it was, like everybody had these fucking stress fractures. Yeah. Like, nobody hears about that shit anymore. Like now it's whatever ACLs or other things. But, yeah. you know, you, you transformed yourself because you maybe used lav and, and his motivation or you're like, this shit ain't going to happen anymore. I'm not going to give them a reason to pull me off the court. Fuck this. <laughs> well, uh, I'll tell I know you. Cal, I, I know Cal was a motivation too, but still. I, I, I'll tell you the real. It, it, it came to a point where, you know, I'm looking around the locker room and, you know, I'm seeing guys, everybody's, you know, strong, cut up. I'm the only fat dude on the team. And I'll just be honest, I'm the only fat dude on the team. So I got tired of being known as that. I got tired of being kind of, you know, singled out. Oh, the fat guy. Oh, you play football. Just getting those type of questions. And I just got tired of hearing that part. And then, you know, just, you know, back in college, you know, all the girls, they loving Toby, yeah. they loving Charles, they're not loving me. I'm like, hold on, I need to be get some of this love to <laughs> forget that. So yeah. I and then the, the, the number one thing, though, is of why this happened to me, why I changed my body, why I lost all the weight. Uh, it was my mother. So I went down to Atlanta where my mother had moved to. Interesting. And, you know, when I got off the plane, this is after we won a championship, you know, it was a big deal. We had been to the White House, you know, Disneyland parade. So I had been living it up all spring. So I get down to my mom's in July or June 1st, uh, 1995. And um, she sees me off the plane. She's like, oh no, boy, we're gonna have to do something about this. Now, mind you, my mother is a vegetarian. Wow. Um, you know, for 
uh, last 40 years and wow. just you know, immaculate shape. She, you know, doesn't wow. look, she's just, you know, she's 65, but doesn't look a day over 45. Hey. Um, and so she, so she's just taking care of herself extremely well. And so she saw me, she said I was looking unhealthy. And so she made up her mind that she was going to wake me up every morning and we we're going to work out. We're going to do wow. this, all this stuff as far as my diet, my workout. And back in the day, she's got, and she's, she was big on herbs and um, supplements. So she had me on turmeric in 1995. Wow. I was on garlic. I was on all that stuff. I'm on all echinacea, all this stuff, they zinc, all that in 95. I was on it all. And so my mom had me on that. Wow. She had me on, um, so I was walking three miles in the morning uh, with um, uh, North Clayton High School on the track at North Clayton in College Park, Georgia. Wow. I was walking three miles with the um, the trash bag type sweatsuit, burning calories. Yeah. And I go to, there was a gym, uh, a weightlifting, just a bare bones kind of just, you know, this, this dude named Danny owned it and he used to be a bodybuilder and he just had a gym that was just whatever. So I go over there, I'd work out with Danny. And then uh, later on in the evening after my mom got off of work, cause she walked before work and then we walk after work. And then I'd, I'd walk, run it, you know, do some stuff. And so all that to be said, I spent 30 days down there with my mom. I lost like 31 pounds in 30 days, um, all naturally, wow. all healthy. So I come back to UCLA. I'm like 230, 6'5", 230. Nobody's recognizing me. Um, mm. That's the summer that um, they, the UCLA people had called. Uh, the uh, Michael Jordan was filming Space yep. Jam. That's and right. so I just the timing of everything, just to come back off the plane, just lost all the weight. Second day back in LA, I'm at the Jordan run dome with Mike. He sees me and it's just like, he knows I lost weight because he know I've been fat my whole life. Yeah. So he's just like, dang, Chris, that he tells Tim Grover. <laughs> no, seriously, did he tells Tim Grover, man, make sure you pick him on my team. Like, because he, he knew like Chris yeah. been working his ass off. Like, I want, yeah, like I see what time this is with him. And and for Mike to do that and pick me and Cedric Sabalos, I had him on the show. We talked about it. Yeah. You know, all them guys gave me a hard time, all them guys. But by the end of probably three weeks or so, mm. you know, they were telling me, hey, man, if you don't start next year, man, something yeah, wrong. Yeah. Yeah, they were just, you know, <laughs> everybody from Juwan to Grant Hill to Patrick Ewing to Mike to Dennis wow. Rodman. I mean, all them guys, all them guys just rubbing elbows, rubbing shoulders with those guys, working out, observing them, observing their process, observing how they do things, how they move. Um, it really propelled me on next to my sophomore year. That's great. Fascinating stuff from Chris Johnson. We hope you enjoyed part one of this two-part series with Chris Johnson, former national champion with the UCLA Bruins, right here in the Sports Deli. For Dr. J and Coach K, I am Hootie Hoot. And again, we hope you listen to part two of this incredible interview, which will discuss KJ's very passionate and intense feelings about the Black Lives Matter movement, the black dollar, and reparations. Remember, your voice matters when fighting systemic racism. Read a book, acknowledge your white privilege, watch a movie about institutional racism, call your local or state representatives, and or have a conversation with someone that doesn't look like you. We have to change the economic, educational, police, housing, prison, and voting suppression narratives that currently need to be changed in this country and the only way to do that is to listen 
and learn and then help be a part of the mobilization and change that we want to see. Remember, you can always send us an email to thesportsdeli at gmail.com. Until next time, please mask up still. Remember, Black Lives Matter. Peace.